Oh, hello there. So glad you could come along. I am the Dream Finder. You've now reached your body probe boarding area. Test track at Epcot. See if you've got what it takes. Here's a special program note while you're visiting. Out on the Seven Seas Lagoon, our exciting new water ski spectacular will be taking place throughout the day. Information and tickets are available right near the Magic Kingdom station. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Just a dream away. Well, it sounds pretty good. In fact, that's just the right spirit. W your information station. Hello and welcome back to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. As always, I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and I want to thank you for tuning in again this week. This is show number 62 for the week of April 13th, 2008. In the Walt Disney World news this week, I'm going to cover Star Wars Weekend's The Demise of the Virtual Magic Kingdom, a new restaurant coming to Walt Disney World, and more. Another of Walt Disney World's hidden treasures is one that's not just always in plain sight and often overlooked, but really is a best of the best, and to some, even a true wonder of Walt Disney World. It's all around us, is magnificent to behold, and really is an integral part of the magic and storytelling of the parks and resorts. Listener Barry Fischette joins me as we tour the parks to explore the beauty of the gardens and landscapes of Walt Disney World, as we invite you to literally stop and smell the roses on your next visit. I'm thrilled to welcome back to the show one of my all-time favorite guests, Samantha Brown from the Travel Channel. She's going to join me to discuss her new special featuring her top Disney favorites as she talks about what she loves about Walt Disney World, including her personal favorite attractions, helpful hints, a typical day of shooting in the parks, and so much more as her new show kicks off a season of Disney on the Travel Channel. And Jeff Pepper is going to join me as we answer some of your listener email, including questions about La Carnaval de Lumiere, Big Figs, Hidden Treasures of Epcot, Disney Quest rumors, corporate sponsors, and more. I'll play more of your voicemails at the end of the show. So as always, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. In this week's Walt Disney World news, I want to start off with a correction to something that I mentioned in last week's email section, where I answered a question about the AAA lounge in Tomorrowland. Well, listener Scott let me know that there was a lounge at one point in Tomorrowland. However, it has been closed, so I just wanted to start off by clarifying that right here. But the big news this week in Walt Disney World and in response to many of your emails is about free dining and whether or not it would be back in 2008. Well, I can tell you that it is back and I have some details for you because you once again can get free dining for the length of your stay when you book a Walt Disney World vacation package with Magic Your Way for check-ins and most nights from August 24th, 2008 through September 9th, 2008. And yes, that means if you check in on September 20th and you stay for an entire week and check out on the 27th, you still get the free dining for the length of your stay. So it really is based on what day you check in as to whether or not you'll qualify for the free dining or not. Now, you must stay for at least three consecutive hotel nights 
at an official Walt Disney World Resort. Plus, you must also purchase at least one day theme park ticket and you'll get the regular Disney dining plan for free for the entire length of your stay. So what do you get? You basically get the Magic Your Way Plus dining package for the price of a regular Magic Your Way package. Now, how much does that save you? For example, for a family of four, two adults, two kids, ages three to nine, that's going to save you about $95 per day. The regular dining package consists of one counter service meal, one table service meal, and one snack per person per day, again, at no extra charge. You now, in 2008, can also upgrade your package to the deluxe dining plan for $32 per adult per night and $10 per child per night for ages 3 to 9. Now, the deluxe dining plan includes the three meals a day at your choice of table service or counter service locations, but it also includes an appetizer with your table service meal and two snacks per day and one refillable mug per person. You can also now upgrade the wine and dine package uh, to either of the packages, but you have to pay full price for that. Now, I do need to be clear and note that in 2008, if you've ever used this before, there is no longer an appetizer included with the table service meals on the regular dining plan, although if you get the deluxe dining plan, it is now included. Gratuities are also no longer included in table service meals, but they are included at dinner shows like Hoopty Doo or Spirit of Aloha dinner show at the Polynesian. So now more than ever, advanced dining reservations are very, very important as table service restaurants do book up fast. And remember, if you do want to take advantage of this offer, you must book by June 22nd. Uh, I'm going to direct you over to the news section over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. There I've posted the codes, and if you want to get a free quote from Mouse Fan Travel, which is my recommended travel provider, you can go there, click on the link, and get your quote right there for your free uh, dining package for 2008. Over in the Magic Kingdom, Disney has just announced the dates for Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party and Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party on the Disney World website. I'll post these rather than repeating them all here, but suffice it to say that the dates for Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party begin on September 5th, not October 5th, September 5th, and end, obviously, on October 31st. The dates for Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party begin on November 10th and end on December 19th. Again, I'll post those dates as well as the links over to the official Disney websites on the WDWRadio.com show notes for this week. We talked about Toy Story Mania over at Disney's Hollywood Studios. There is going to be a sneak preview for annual pass holders. They'll be able to get a good look at the attraction on May 10th through May 12th from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. over at Disney's Hollywood Studios in order to gain admittance. All you need to do is present your uh, valid Walt Disney World annual pass and a photo ID at the attraction's entrance. And the attraction is slated to open to the public and for all guests in late May 2008. Staying over at the studios, it is definitely time to start planning for Star Wars weekends because starting in the first weekend in June, you're going to get a a chance to meet an impressive, most impressive, lineup of special guests at the studios because in addition to costumed Star Wars characters, there's going to be lots of fun activities, Star Tours, the Jedi Training Academy, celebrity guests for meet and greets, and and a classic Hollywood-style motorcade featuring Star Wars characters. The StarWars.com website has posted the official list that I referenced a few weeks ago as to who the actual celebrities are going to be. So here they are. The celebrity host, as expected for each weekend, is going to be Warwick Davis. And Warwick Davis, if you remember, 
was only about 11 years old when he played Wicket the Ewok in Return of the Jedi, and he also made an appearance in Episode 1 in multiple roles, including that of Anakin's little friend, Wald. Now, from June 6th through June 8th, the celebrities are going to be Jeremy Bullock and Daniel Logan. Jeremy Bullock is best known for his role as the bounty hunter Boba Fett in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. He also was in Revenge of the Sith, and Daniel Logan played the young Boba Fett in Attack of the Clones. June 13th through the 15th, Peter Mayhew and David Prowse, two of the most popular of the celebrities because Peter Mayhew played Chewbacca in the original trilogy and David Prowse was Darth Vader in the original trilogy as well. June 20th through the 22nd is Amy Allen and Matthew Wood. Amy Allen played the Jedi Knight Aya Sakura in Episode 2 and 3 and Matthew Wood was the supervising sound editor for Episode 3 and he was also the voice of General Grievous. And finally, from June 27th through the 29th is Dave Filoni. Now, he is the creative force behind, really, the next chapter of the Star Wars saga. He's the supervising director of the Clone Wars animated feature and series, and it's expected that he might even offer an inside look as to what's next for the Star Wars franchise. Obviously, look uh, for possible changes and or additions to this list. You can, of course, check the official Disney World website as well as StarWars.com for more information. Over in downtown Disney, we now know the identity of one of the groups that's going to be bringing a new dining experience to the area in 2009. It's eBrands, and they're an Orlando-based restaurant group. It's going to bring an as-yet-unnamed eatery featuring authentic Central and South American cuisine, specialty tequilas, premium wines, and live music to downtown Disney. Some of their existing restaurants include Timpano and the Samba Room, and they are already present, actually, in Walt Disney World, and they have been for more than 25 years because they are the operator of Epcot's Morocco Pavilion. The new restaurant is going to feature bold colors, a hacienda-style interior, stone floors, and more importantly, an open-air environment. It's going to be 5,000 square feet, two stories tall, and will also include a tequila bar and outdoor seating along Village Lake. Now, no name, location, or completion date has been announced at this time, but stay tuned for more details as they're released. And speaking of finding a nice place to sit, relax, and have a drink, I'll give you one guess as to the destination named as the best place to get a cocktail in the United States. And it's kind of odd because for a place that to many people is, quote, just for kids, it may be surprising that Walt Disney World is that place. Because according to Cheers magazine, Walt Disney World runs America's best chain of cocktail bars. The magazine also named Disney's Blue Glow Teeny as the magazine's best chain signature drink. The magazine also named Walt Disney World Resort the nation's best chain overall beverage program. And according to the magazine, Disney's cocktail business delivers just a little bit of Disney magic in every glass. As many of you know, Disney's Virtual Magic Kingdom was created and launched back in 2005 as part of Disneyland's 50th anniversary celebration. But Walt Disney announced this week that it will shut down the VMK on May 21st at 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Virtual Magic Kingdom is an interactive game where users could log on for free and create virtual characters that explored the Magic Kingdom, created rooms, games, and more while interacting with other guests. And according to Disney, this really sort of outlived its lifetime. It was extended well beyond what it was intended to do. Of course, current users of Disney's Virtual Magic Kingdom can continue to use the site up until it closes on May 21st. In the parks, they will continue to sell VMK cards and pins. But again, as of that 21st closing date, access to the site and any VMK items on the site will no longer be available. For more information, you can visit vmk.disney.go.com. 
And after three weeks of online voting for the Disney Parks Top 10 Chief Magic Official, Disney Parks and Career Builder announced this week the top three CMO finalists. They are David Hawley of Roseville, California, Trip West from Powder Springs, Georgia, and DisneyWorldTrivia.com's own Justin Vance McConey from Seven Fields, Pennsylvania. These three were named last week out of more than 1,300 entries and nearly half a million online votes. Now the three are going to participate in the final round, which is a two-day competition at Walt Disney World that begins Thursday, April 17th and ends Friday, April 18th. The winner is going to be crowned CMO on Tuesday, April 22nd in front of Cinderella Castle in the Magic Kingdom. And the winner, as part of Disney's Year of a Million Dreams, will travel to Disneyland and the Walt Disney World resorts and help create magical experiences for guests, participate in special events, and work their magic behind the scenes with the Walt Disney Imagineers. Starting April 17th, the in-park competition videos highlighting each of the finalists participating in some of the events are going to be posted on www.dreamcmo.com for the final round of online voting. The ballots are going to remain open through April 21st at 11.59 p.m. And the top vote-getter is going to be named the Disney Parks Chief Magic Official. I want to say congratulations to all three and everybody who entered and my best wishes to Justin M., who is a regular, like I said, on the DisneyWorldTrivia.com boards for making it to this level. He should be very proud, as they all should, and know that I and everybody over at the site is going to be pulling and voting for you. Finally, it's less than 100 days until Magic Meets 2008, and the Dream Team Project charity auction will be back again this year to the event, which sold out in less than 38 hours. We're going to once again be holding our charity auction to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. This year, we have about 100 items, including a lot of themed baskets filled with Disney goodies, as well as some very unique experiences donated by people in the community, including Steve Barrett's personal in-park Hidden Mickey's tour, a Tim Devine framed canvas print, a special Deb Wills experience, and so much more. Yes, I'm teasing, so there will be details to follow. To learn more, visit DisneyWorldTrivia.com. There you can find out more about the Dream Team Project, as well as read the new Dream Team Project blog. Say that three times fast. And if you want to help, even if you can't make it to Magic Meets, we have a Dream Team wish list that's been posted on the forums where there may be an item that you have that might be able to help us out, or perhaps you could become a sponsor, where for as little as $5, you could help us with some of the expenses associated with running the auction. The Dream Team really is a team effort, and every little bit helps to put a smile on the face of a seriously ill child. I want to say thanks to Pat, Disney Dame 2004, and her team, and everybody who has donated and contributed in so many ways. I really do appreciate it. And again, for more information about the Dream Team Project, you can visit DisneyWorldTrivia.com. And to catch up on the latest Walt Disney World news as it happens, you can visit the news and articles section over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com and discuss anything you should hear on the show or to contribute any news of your own. Visit the forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Email me at Lou at WDWRadio.com or call the voicemail at 206 202 for WDW. I've said that the WDW radio show is, of course, for you, and that you can make it really as interactive as you like. 
And since the show started, many of you have contacted me with questions and segment ideas, suggestions, and other feedback. And some of you have also helped introduce me to some of the hidden treasures that I love to highlight on the show. And this week, I want to welcome in listener Barry Frechette, who emailed me about yet another hidden treasure that's sitting in plain sight. We see it, we enjoy it, and interact with it throughout Walt Disney World, often not taking specific notice, except maybe during certain times of year or special events. And it's something that takes an army of cast members, most of whom who work out of sight, in the middle of the night, and sometimes with the help of some inconspicuous little creatures, to make Walt Disney World truly breathtaking. So we're going to be talking about the landscaping and gardens of Walt Disney World, and I want to welcome in listener Barry Frechette to the show. Barry, welcome. Thanks, Lou. Uh, thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. Now, I really appreciate you contacting me about this. And like I said, it's something that, you know, we see all the time and we know is beautiful, but but oftentimes probably overlook and don't take specific notice. But when I read your email, uh, which was really in following the seven wonders of Walt Disney World, and it's actually six because I promise I still will do seven very soon. Um, it was something that you suggested to me along with some of the other listeners. So let's kind of talk in generalities first. Why do you think the landscaping and the gardens of Walt Disney World deserve, in your mind, to be considered a true wonder? Well, I think it goes back, you know, when you had a show which um, with Jeff Pepper and some of the guys, I thought it was fantastic. It was about music. And, um, you know, music helps set the stage as far as being in there uh, being the, the magic that is Disney World and for us in our family you know we, we go down there so often that that um, you know you take in all the sights but for us part of that is, is understanding you know the landscape and seeing it and living it and, and so many mer- uh, memories are sort of based on that you know we take those memories back with us and they're the smells and the sights but they're also the uh, the feeling you get from being surrounded by you know coming from New England you don't get to have it that much <laughs> throughout the year but I think being there and and being able to uh, experience um, you know everything that's there you can see the sights and the smells and, the, and hear the music but there's something about being able to to walk among those gardens that really help I guess deliver the magic that is Walt Disney World yeah and it's something that you know hits us from the second we get on property. Uh, and if you think about it, about almost 12% of property uh, in all of Walt Disney World, which is about 3,000 football fields worth, is devoted to these to this landscape and these gardens that sometimes we might take for granted. And it, it does so many things, like you said, the music does, as far as setting the mood and telling a story and helping to transition. And those are some of the things that we'll cover um, as we go through, because we're going to point out how places like Frontierland are, are overgrown and give you a sense of sort of the Wild West, and where places like Liberty Square are much more tailored and, and trimmed back. Adventureland is, is very lush and very dense and exotic. And the use of, this pl- of the plants and the landscaping and the gardening and the flowers really serves to set a tone wherever you are on property. No, I agree. It's... Um... You know, it's it is part of the it's part of the magic, frankly. I mean, you, you can walk down Main Street and uh, listen. You, you hear the music and you feel like you're there, and you smell the French toast loaf coming out of the bakery, and you, you you're there. And I think what's interesting is very quickly you you pass Crystal Palace and up over the bridge, and you get a little darker, and you're in Adventureland, and you know it. You walk through there, and you don't quite realize it, but somebody had to take all that time and sort of think about, okay, 
I've gone from one place to another place. I feel like I'm in an entire different world. And not only has the music changed, but the landscaping has changed. And it's the little attention to detail, I think, to me that um, when I heard the music show, I was like, well, to me, the natural next step is, oh, my God, it's not just sights and, and, and sounds, but it's feeling like you're in a different place. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's exactly right. I absolutely agree. It, it, uh, it's kind of magical the way uh, you can be transported just by walking over a bridge. You're right, and, and truly is, Walt Disney World is a true multi-sensory experience, and that's what we tried to highlight with the music show. And again, we see the landscaping, we, you know, we, if we stop for a minute and notice how well manicured everything is, you know, there's almost half a million miles of, of grass that needs to be mowed. And I've always, I remember as a kid even going, like, like, God, I can't believe how perfect everything is, and how do they do it? I mean, there's... More than 600 people, you know, gardeners and arborists and people that deal with irrigation specialists and pest management that make all of this so perfect 24-7, 365, no matter what time of year, no matter what season it is, 3 million bedding plants, 8,500 interior plants. And I'm throwing out these facts and figures simply because we, you got to think about that awesome infrastructure that's in place to keep it looking so beautiful all the time. Oh, it, it, absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I laugh because I think about the daunting task to, to keep up with everything. Yet on my porch out here, I've got a Mickey Topiary that I, I can't keep green, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it, it inspires you. So it's, it's amazing. There's a great, um, there's a great story in, in uh, Charles Ridgway's book about the last, um, the last push to get Disneyland ready. And, and at some point, the Imagineers were like, they can't finish it. So I think they decided to plant some of the trees upside down in, in Adventureland to give it a sense that it's an exotic tree. Essentially, you know, to make the magic happen, they planted it upside down. So you saw all the roots and you felt like you were somewhere else. So I think that's it's kind of like it, it shows the, the uh, imagination and creativity that goes into to all aspects of what makes uh, Disney World so special. Well, that's the thing. You know, we talk about creating magic and it's done sometimes in some very unique ways. And in ways that help us, as you said in your email, sort of suspend that disbelief when we enter Frontierland and we feel like we are in the West or we enter Adventureland or we enter some of the different pavilions maybe in World Showcase that we're going to touch on, the, the sights and the sounds and the senses and everything else. And the landscape is a very, very important part of doing that. And uh, and maybe that's what we should do is start of maybe touring Walt Disney World a little bit and talking about how the landscape and how the design and how gardens makes this true Disney magic. Uh, we can kind of go park by park, and I guess it makes sense really to start off with the Magic Kingdom. Um, what are some of the examples that you think that really help demonstrate how, how these um, play such an important role? Well, yeah, I think, you know, kind of going around the horn, I, I uh, you know, certainly want, you know, one, of the, one of the places that I think everybody takes a picture of is, it's kind of the obvious point, but certainly once you get to the main gate, I think it's always been fascinating to me um, every year we go down, which is you know at least once a year, is uh, the entranceway, which is just below the train station. And it's fascinating to see every year how it's a little bit of a different Mickey, or it's one season it's these flowers, and the poinsettias come in come holiday time. So it's kind of an easy one to call out, but I think to me that's always been, as far as the feeling of a of a sort of architectural like landscaping design, it's always been something that's more than just you know, a, a Mickey made out of 
you know, there's flowers at any time of the year. So it's very yeah. welcoming. It's very, it's a very welcoming, yeah. reassuring sight to see that Mickey and the flowers, and something we, I think we've come to expect. Yeah, and it, it's it's in a way, you know, we talk about this, but you know, like, oh, I'm home, you know, that kind of feeling. And it's always you, you can look through the years and see all the different pictures, and each year it's something different. It's always a a great, you know, great feeling to see that sort of icon always there. So it's always a special special thing we try to take pictures of. So, but um. I think when we just talked about Adventureland, I think that's always interesting to see that when you, once you enter enter that area, everything becomes much larger than life, um, and it's, it's fun to see how they've let everything get become overgrown and how much effort and time they must spend to make it feel overgrown. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, you can go to you know across the way, and the lawn is beautiful and about a quarter inch high, and always kept the same way, but. Um, to make it look like it's overgrown probably takes a lot of time and effort. Well, I think I'll stop here with you because I'll talk about Adventureland for a second. Because I think especially on the bridge coming from the hub to Adventureland is one of my favorite places in all of Walt Disney World because you really get a sense and there's a, a point that you can stop and look to your left towards the Crystal Palace and look to your right more towards the Jungle Cruise and the water and the dock and the bridge and see that transition take place. And the landscaping really plays a very important part of that because you go from the beautiful, well-manicured Victorian gardens to the very exotic, very dense foliage, very green, lush foliage of Adventureland. Uh, And it gives you that sense that you are now in a completely different environment, a completely different time. Uh, And again, that, that very sort of exotic locale. Yeah, and even if you look, it's funny, I just thought of this, you know, certainly the, the waterways are wide open before you get there, but you're right, if you look to the right or the left, when you go, it becomes very dark and very enclosed, you know, in a similar way the animal kingdom can make you feel in some of the walkways, but like, you get a, you know, you hear some of the sounds, you hear the music, and, uh, you know, certainly for everybody who, who wants to suspend their disbelief, um, you know, you're walking into an entirely different world, so. Right. It's cool, it's neat. And then we can even kind of go around, because as you leave, Adventureland, and you you go to the area by Splash Mountain, and more specifically, heading on over to Big Thunder Mountain. That's another place that, if you go sort of near the Fast Pass machines, uh, take notice of the cactus and the yucca plants. You instantly get a sense that you are no longer in Central Florida; you are now in Texas or Arizona or New Mexico because of that that sort of desert environment that they can create there. Uh, it's it's great. It's um. To me, that's, that's a great example of, of um, you know, showing what the Imagineers, when, they, when they're thinking about setting a feeling or a vibe or something to take you someplace else uh, besides Central Florida. Um, you know, I think it, it's fascinating to watch how they they must have had to think about, okay, it, it needs to feel barren. It needs to feel like if the wind blew hard enough, you'd have sand everywhere. Um, and the same goes for where the plants are and how sparse it feels. And, um, you know, I walk my son up through the walkway and and you look around you feel like you're in a different place and for him it's you know he's waiting to get to the top of that little path and play with the water on the way up and 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 and, you know really helps you know helps um helps with feeling like it is it's such a magical place that you are i'm in the middle of uh southwest somewhere you know listening listening for the mine train just around the corner you know exactly and a place that you might not think where the landscaping and the flowers and the gardens play an important part is actually over in Tomorrowland. Uh, because if you really take notice and look at the trees, look at the beds, they're pruned very specifically. They give a, a sort of futuristic look, much along the same way 
that you'll find over in Future World and even over at the Contemporary Resort, the way the trees are pruned. And look at the use of color in the flowers and sort of the dimensional forms that they take uh, in the bed, you know, to kind of give you that that futuristic feel to it. I guess that's how all plants are going to grow in the future, but (laughs) a, a very different sense of what you get as you step off Main Street or as you step out of Fantasyland even. Yeah, it's 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 great to watch, and it's funny. You, you you know, we're all we all get there. We usually run around like crazy, but uh, you stop and slow down a little bit. And you start taking the pictures. You realize how the transitions happen. Even if you you know you step into say, um, you know, up into Fantasyland in Mickey's Toontown, it, it, the, the flowers become bigger and they become a little different. The way they're planted are different. Something give you a different vibe, and you know, outside the, the the circus tent is, is uh, you know, the corn and whatnot that they'll grow is, is part of the theme and the feel, and it feels so different. But you're right, if you go to, if you go to uh, Tomorrowland, you know, nice hard edges, and the hedges are really trimmed nicely, and it sort of have this really organized sort of pseudo tomorrow that, <laughs> that may never be, or, you know, it, it's really interesting. So it, it's fun to watch how you can walk from place to place and feel like you're in a, in a different place. And even... Above and beyond the lands, more specifically, there are areas of the park, and there's many, many places in the Magic Kingdom specifically, that if you can isolate your view and isolate your senses for a moment and look, for example, over at the Pinocchio Village House, stand in front of the entrance, isolate your view just to the Village House, you get a sense that you are in Germany with this sort of old world garden and there's geraniums and azaleas, a very different look that you get anywhere else in Fantasyland, for example, or obviously the Haunted Mansion. The landscaping sets an amazing uh, scene over there and tells that story. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I mean, to me, I, I, you know, the last trip we went down, um, you took a lot of pictures around the Haunted Mansion. To me, that's that's a great example of, of you know, the creative mind that, that is the, the, the people at Disney understands, okay, to set the tone of, of, of the Haunted Mansion needs to feel like it, no one's cared for it in years but at the same time the amount of effort that goes in to make those rose bushes that spill up and over the um the carriage in the front is uh it's it's amazing and it feels overgrown it feels like uh, it's been dilapidated but to me it's, it's all part of the scene that plays just as important part as as you know the the tombstones and the uh the crow sounds and uh, the creaky doors exactly it's not it's so well done because it's not a mess it's not unkempt it's specifically tailored to give you that just that sense without making it look as though yes disney just left it alone and let it overgrow and that little detail that little single blood red rose on master gracie's tombstone mm-hmm. 99% of the people might overlook it but it's an exceptional touch that again helps paint that picture no you're absolutely right it's, it's part of that uh it's that little extra touch that uh and frankly disney does so well yeah and there's one other place that that I really enjoy, and it's, again, one of those often overlooked areas because there's really nothing there to see for the most part other than maybe just a picture spot, and that is the Rose Garden, and specifically the paths that wind through it, Um, the hanging baskets and the roses. Uh, I mean, the roses, it's, you know, sort of the the official U.S. flower. There's 13,000 of them around property. They spend more than 400 hours per year, and this is a great example of how they use the roses and the baskets just to, to create such a beautiful, warm, welcoming environment there. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, you get lost down that, in that, uh, the winding path um, between Tomorrowland and, and the castle, the hub area. 
it's beautiful. I mean, every year we go back, it's it's gotten more rich and more vibrant. And, uh, you know, you end up taking pictures, and my wife usually says, why can't we have these at the house? <laughs> <laughs> I say, because I'd kill them. Yeah, well, that's, so, uh, that's like that's like me with my one fern that I couldn't get to live, and, and I kind of gave up the gardening duties after that. So, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, another place, let's kind of move over to Epcot, because this is where I think landscaping... Again, it is just amazing. Um, in Future World, yes, but even more so in World Showcase because of the use and the variety of plants and flowers. Um, tell us about some of the things maybe in Epcot that you like. Yeah, and, and to me, these are, you know, they, they certainly, like you mentioned, Pinocchio, it makes you feel like you're in Germany. Uh, the landscaping, to me, uh, and the way they've architected it throughout the world show it's just amazing to me i i you know i get lost there sometimes i'm we're heading down for the festival shortly and looking forward to it I take a lot of pictures um but to me you know it's fascinating if you actually can slow down and take a, a great look i think the ground in canada are just amazing um up in the back there uh it's just amazing to watch them sweep down towards where la Salier is and um you can really spend a fair amount of time really just getting lost and and on a quiet afternoon when uh, the crowd is maybe on the main thoroughway, you get down below there it's with the water coming off the falls. It's beautiful. You know, it's, it's a, really it's one of those moments that, uh, you know, you wish you could capture and bottle up and, and bring back with you uh, back to the Northeast. Well, they were, they were, they were inspired um, by the Bouchard Gardens in Canada. And the one, again, little detail, even if you've gone to Walt Disney World a hundred times a year, they replant the flowers to give you a sense of what season it is up in Canada. So when it's wintertime, you're going to find a lot of white blooms there uh, to give you the sense that, that it's snow that's fallen on the ground. And again, it's this little subtle touch that maybe the casual guest might overlook, but but just so, so well done. Yeah, and then these people are you know, doing it in the middle of the night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Before he comes in. So, um, But to me, there's a couple... Each each country, I think, has a, a special place you could certainly see. I think, you know, one of the ones for me that a lot of folks often overlook is if you can take a walk up into the little area up in Japan, um, the beautiful koi ponds that are there. Um, it's a it's a great quiet little place that's out of the main the main, I guess, buzz you'd call it. But uh, it's beautiful. And the amount, the attention to detail they've taken to help match the the, the traditional Japanese garden is. Um, it's really interesting. It's a great spot to sort of in the shade, <laughs> but uh, it's a great spot that really captures, I think, what it feels to be in a true Japanese garden. And you know, certainly, uh, my family and I are probably going to get to Japan anytime soon. But it's, it's neat to be there and experience it. And uh, you know, it's um, it's it's part of that magic, which which makes you feel like you're in another country, which I think is great. Well, you are speaking my language when you talk about Japan, because I've said it on the show before that it's arguably my my favorite of all the pavilions and the muted landscape with the beautiful greeneries and the water gardens that's so meticulously manicured and you know again people probably overlooked a simple thing like the raked gravel that's in that uh, dry sand garden and the bamboo and when you get up there by the Yakaturi house it's just so serene yet so symbolic much like the China pavilion is it's just rooted in symbolism although in China for example it's done very differently. There's yeah. lily ponds and the use of rocks and, and other elements uh, as opposed to how it's done in the Japan Pavilion. But both are just done exceptionally, exceptionally well. Yeah, it's interesting to see. And it's a good point. I mean, I think you and Jeff had done a, a, a 
CSI on, on China. And when you mentioned that, I was like, it's exactly right. It, it is a definite, different feel. And each one is certainly respectful of the, the country that it came from. So it's a great way to, to sort of myself get lost, but also make sure I get, you know, my children can certainly experience and understand, you know, in a way, um, experience another country and, yeah. and how it feels to be there and, and some of the, the culture and some of the uh, experience that can be without actually having to get there. <laughs> And I like how different pavilions use different techniques to convey the sense that, like you said, you are in that in that country. So, for example, in Italy, you've got olive trees and you've got these beautiful potted plants interwoven with statuary. And in Paris, you've got that, that typical Parisian city kiosk, which is surrounded by this necklace of beautiful trees and, and brings this color, this wonderful color to what would be the center of the city. Uh, so many of the pavilions like the UK and, and also France use geometric topiary and the hedge mazes. And another one that I really enjoy, too, is take take some time as you walk through and, and buy Morocco. Look at the tall trees that sort of add and complement the high skyline there. The citrus trees and, again, the water wheel. All these little elements that really define the pavilions and tell the stories. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you, you know, but with having the children certainly you run quickly through these places and for me it's always um you know it's always slow down a little bit and try and look because i think there's there's so much to see and you're right it's it's the framing in morocco is a great example i think it's interesting someone actually had to sit down and think and and plan out okay to understand how to make this feel like you're in a different spot whether it be the tall trees accented with with large planting uh large planting beds that are out in front of the little kiosk um the shopping kiosk right in front. I think that's interesting to watch. You know, I've stood there enough watching Illuminations to take another <laughs> picture for sure. So uh, I think I think that's interesting. And also, there's a there's a great little quiet spot right behind um, the perfume store in France that's um, really well manicured, very very beautiful. I mean, the last time I think we were there, there were rabbits out in a little area in the grass, but it actually overlooks the international gateway, which is which. Lucky enough, I mean, that's beautiful over there itself, but if the jasmines are out, there's a smell that's, you know, a hundred times better than any of the perfumes you can get inside. Uh, it's a great little spot that, uh, you know, we have a jasmine plant upstairs that I've, I've killed many times over, but <laughs> the, only, the only reason we have it is so if I can get the bloom for three days a year, it smells like uh, it smells like we're sitting in France. So. And the kind of smell and that feeling definitely um, helps capture the magic. And that's a great example when I talked about uh, when I was at the Flower and Garden Festival, which, which we should mention as well, you really, especially in France, you get a sense of the scents that are associated with these plants and with these flowers. And you talk about a multi-sensory experience. It's great. And you can also learn about them, too, as well. I mean, I am the farthest person from a green thumb, believe me. <laughs> but much like in the English gardens uh, that have the herbs in the, in the knot garden, there's labels that identify what they are, same as in France same as in most of these pavilions. So if you are curious or you do want to learn, you can. And you can, you know, try and do it at home um, if you want, trying to recreate that at home. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, you know, one of the things we often do is, we were talking about the resorts, and that could be a whole other show, but um, it's funny if I'm helping someone lay the landscape their lawn or help them out, it's, you know, my wife and I think, is this more of a beach club feel or is this more of a wilderness lodge feel? It becomes sort of an adjective. You know, based on how those environments make you feel from a from a you know landscape and architecture stand, standpoint, you know it's interesting. 
Well, that's the great thing about this, too, is that everybody sort of has their their thing that connects them back to Walt Disney World. And many people might not realize that the landscaping and the gardens is a great way to do that. And like you just made a point, depending on what you see or the flowers that you have or the, or the, the type of garden that you have, it might bring back a memory or something that you enjoyed uh, from Walt Disney World. And, you know, we mentioned briefly the Flower and Garden Festival, which is going on now. You want to talk about really enjoying and experiencing and being able to learn and even take some of that home with you. Uh, the Flower and Garden Festival um, is a great way to experience that because everything they've done there is plussed a uh, hundred times over. Oh, it's it's inc- I I love this time of year down there, um, and the festival is amazing. It, 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 all the, they do a great job with offering tutorials and and sort of. Uh, classes on on how they do things there, and they have specialists come in and and give you know little discussions on everything from you know uh, the good bugs they have in your garden to uh, to how to uh, how to plant roses <laughs> if you so choose. But it's great. I mean, I end up uh, the kids end up trying to drag me out of there, but I uh, you know try to take it as, as, as take part as much as possible. So it's great, it's a great experience. Yeah, a lot to enjoy there. I mean, you can easily make a full day or two uh, just at the Flower and Garden Festival. But let's move over to Disney's Hollywood Studios. And I have a feeling that if we talk about specific attractions, we're probably going to mention the same one or two. (laughs) But one thing that I love about the studios is if you stand on Hollywood Boulevard and you look down or start walking down Sunset, I I love the use of the, the tall palm trees that line Sunset Boulevard almost like street lamps as you would find in the real Sunset Boulevard, and it paints such a wonderful visual landscape of the Tower of Terror in the distance. I just think it's spectacular. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. It's, um, you know, it, it's just the way that uh, it frames it, and certainly it's funny, I've taken so many pictures, and it's such an iconic view looking down that street, but uh, each picture, the, the trees act as the frame. You're absolutely right. Um, I think it's, great. it's a great tribute to, you know, being on Sunset Boulevard, actually out in California, it's sort of, it's a tip of the hat to um, to L.A. for sure and the classic Hollywood. But uh, it, it it frames sort of <laughs> where you're walking, which is a great way to lead right up to to the to the main entrance of uh, you know the, the, the Tower of Terror, which is great. And it actually feels like I'm walking down the street in some uh, in some street in, in uh, on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood to this old abandoned hotel. And, and I have a feeling that if we talk about the single attraction or single area of the studios, that the, the, the use of landscape and fl- and flowers and whatnot tells a story, it's got to be the queue of Tower of Terror. <laughs> yeah, it, it, we've talked about this quite a bit. Um, I absolutely agree. I think, think this is a great example of, I think, what Disney does um, is, is best at, is actually setting that mood and, and feeling... You know, it's not just a queue for a ride. You're there, um, and it's everything from the the, the cost, the uh, cast member, you know, greeting you and certainly checking heights and whatnot, and collecting fast passes. But as soon as you begin to walk through that, not only is it overgrown um, the pathway, but the mists are pouring out, and you can hear the music in the background, and the vines really do a great job. They've done a great job of actually letting everything grow up and out. But at the same time, as soon as you turn that first corner, you see the hotel, but you feel like it's you know, early twenties, and uh, and uh, this place is is somehow cursed. So it's a great feeling. Yeah, it, it, they've they've done a great job of obscuring the sight lines, so you can't see anything other than the the hotel in the distance, or these 
vines and trees that are, are dark and gloomy that are very imposing, very ominous as you walk through different times of the day or evening really sort of enhance that experience. And like you said, the use of the mist and the use of the vines and that somewhat overgrown look, that dilapidated look really has a very, very ominous sense to it. And we talk about taking time to walk through the queues. Tower of Terror is one that's overlooked, but you really should. Oh, it's a great one. It's funny that the one one of the things I noticed actually is you get towards that empty little, um, I guess, fountain or or known kind of pond, I guess, a little uh, water pool. I guess um, they actually have fake vines that wrap up around the the trellis, but they did such a good job with the real vines that now they've actually they've actually wrapped themselves around the fake ones. So it's really hard to tell what's real and what's fake. And I think that's a I think it was a neat tribute to to the the folks who who helped create all that. Um, it's hard to tell what's real and what's fake, which is fantastic. So, that was great. And it's funny because the polar opposite of the type of feeling that you get there, but still an exceptional use of gardens and plants and flowers and trees to set a stage is over at Disney's Animal Kingdom, where when you step into the oasis, that lush greenery, that, that warm, misty feeling really sets the stage for the adventure and the experience that you're going to have. And you want to talk about a, a singular park where landscaping is is so important and used so well, Animal Kingdom um, is probably takes the cake in that area. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. It's, it's funny. We, um, you know, we've been to Animal Kingdom so many times. Uh, I sort of, the last trip, really tried to focus on, on what makes it different. And... Um, you know what's interesting is, is, like you said, you walk you walk through that area and everything is is grown up around you. And people sometimes will say it's you know, it feels a little claustrophobic, but in a way, I think that's that's fantastic because in a way, it, it it makes you feel like you would if you're in the jungle. Um, and in a way, it guides you around. So once you do hit that oasis and you see the open expanse of you know the Tree of Life and, and, the, and the surrounding lands, um, it feels like you've arrived somewhere. Uh, and I think that's it, the planning behind it. It just doesn't happen by accident. So I think it's an interesting, you know, it's a great use of space and a, and a great use of the landscaping to, to really tell part of that story, which is you're here at the Oasis and now you're ready to explore more. So and it, uh, I, also, I also like the way that, too, they, they, the, the paths are a little, sometimes to be smaller and the, the material's overgrown. And as you go from Asia to Africa, things change. And, and if you're not paying attention, you, you realize, oh, my God, I'm in a whole different place. Yeah, and I think the experience really begins from the parking lot where it was a very deliberate choice to keep it very barren, very open because the feeling that I get, the word that I was trying to come up with that I, for the feeling that I get when I enter Disney's Animal Kingdom is that it embraces you, it envelops you, and it surrounds you. And you get that feeling the entire time that you're there, no matter what land that you're in, the park sort of surrounds you through the use of the foliage. And again, the different types that are used to convey where you are, whether it be the heart of Africa or the mountains of Asia or even a place like Dinoland, uh, mm-hmm. where it's so completely different, yeah. but but it, it's so important. Yeah, it's interesting you say Dinoland. To me, uh, I, I thought about this, and it's, you know, the, the, the use of ferns and, 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 and shorter plants and shorter, you know, the squat palm trees uh, gives it a certain... Uh, you know, you actually are sometimes roaming with the dinosaurs. So it's fun, <laughs> and then you step over on, into the more of the 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 atmosphere, which is uh, 
you know, the, the, the carnival-like atmosphere, and, and it changes entirely. You know, it becomes more barren, and you're actually in a different spot, so the stuff Route 66. Yeah, and, and you hinted to it briefly that the experience goes beyond the theme parks and the resorts we could do a whole separate show on <laughs> because they are so well-themed. And, I mean, examples like the Polynesian, when you walk into the Great Ceremonial House, how quiet and lush it is and the exotic colors and the flowers that instantly transport you, um, you know, to the South Sea somewhere or the fresh-cut flowers, that little detail at the Grand Floridian. Um, so many of the different resorts, Port Orleans, I mean, again, we could go through the list, Animal Kingdom. The Lodge, uh, yeah. But it, it's it's done throughout the, you know, more than 25,000 acres. And, and again, put that in context, you're talking twice the size of Manhattan and what we see on stage that, that is so well manicured. And something else, you know, we didn't even touch on too, we're talking about all these, the plants and the flowers as we walk through the parks and walk through the pavilions. There's so much that goes on inside, the inside gardens, inside the attractions, inside some of the restaurants. Crystal Palace is one that comes to mind. Some of the other places uh, throughout po- property that we, we almost take for granted. Um, but they, they give the same sort of theming and exceptional care to what we see inside as opposed to what we see outside. Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of what I think makes you know Disney special. Disney World special is a you know, the magic that it, it's the attention to detail and everything from I think from the cast members all the way down to you know the the landscaping, which makes you feel like in a different place. And frankly, you, for me, I, I I go there and I come home all inspired to somehow attack my lawn and make it better, <laughs> or plant tall grass, and uh, and uh, make it feel like we're a different spot. So uh, it's it's uh, it's definitely a place where uh, you know it's pretty magical. Yeah, and it's fun too. I mean, look at there's more than 200 topiaries, and I talked about the topiaries and how they're created a little bit when I talked about the Flower and Garden Festival. But that adds a sense of whimsy and fun to what they're doing too. And I think it's fun for both kids and adults to see some of their favorite characters represented in flowers and plants and, and uh, you know different types of material. Um, it, it's really Disney and and the the so many people that are part of the horticultural staff working um, at their finest and we should make note of probably the, the single person that sort of started this tradition was Bill Evans he worked with Walt Disney to create the landscapes in Disneyland that were so authentic um, that were sort of based on on what he had learned from movie making techniques it's carried through today um, it's been expanded on it's grown but still that that wonderful sense of detail and tradition definitely carries on yeah I agree it's um I mentioned Ridgeway's book before, but he mentioned Bill Evans a lot, and sort of the what you know the, the magic that um, <laughs> that had to be created in such a short amount of time, and and how he was a part of all the different parks. Uh, yeah, it really is. It's an amazing part of what makes it makes it you know uh, makes it a special a special place and a place where you can be really transported somewhere else. Yeah, and what I want to do too is I'm going to put um, a link over to. Uh, DisneyWorldTrivia.com because I have a couple of different pages where I've got some of these landscaping fun facts and and rather than me just sort of rattle them off on the show I'm going to direct you over to there because they're very interesting and I know for me personally this is part of what started me on my Disney obsession for lack of a better word with the books because I was amazed and I wanted to know what went into creating something that we all enjoy so much and with, with with the plants and the gardens this living scenery that we get to experience as part of the show. Um, 
is truly amazing, and you should really take note of some of the things that Disney does behind the scenes to make that magic happen, because I think part of what makes us appreciate Walt Disney World is not necessarily what we consciously take notice of, but when you literally stop and, and smell the roses and imagine you are on this exotic jungle safari or savor the scents from the Parisian gardens and enjoy the twank- tranquility of the Asian koi pond, you come to realize the magic behind the magic. So next time you go to Walt Disney World, I hope that maybe this segment uh, will help you take a moment and enjoy what you see, the immersive environment that you are literally whisked away to when you step on property, and the subtle beauty and the charm of the gardens and the landscapes of Walt Disney World. Barry Frechette, I want to say thank you so much for not only sending me your email, but for coming on the show and discussing this with me. No problem. Thank you so much. Thank you. Today, I will be spanning the continent from the Pacific to the Atlantic to bring you my favorite Disney picks in both Disneyland and Disney World. These are my favorite attractions, restaurants, characters, snack food, plus invaluable tips that I have learned from all my experience here that will hopefully make your planning a trip here less overwhelming and just being here absolutely as wonderful as it should be. So, you ready for my favorites? Come on. When we can't get to Walt Disney World as often as we'd like, we look for other ways to try and bring some of that Disney magic into our home. And it may be from participating in online communities to listening to your favorite podcast or taking the family to see a new Disney feature film. But one of our favorite ways is by having some of that magic brought right to us on our living room couch by the warm and friendly Samantha Brown. As the host of numerous shows and specials on the Travel Channel, including a number of very popular features on the Disney theme parks, she's able to take us on an hour-long journey with her as she explores some of the very best that Walt Disney World and Disneyland have to offer. Having hosted specials such as the Great Hotel series and Disney's Holiday Magic, she of course has had an opportunity to visit the parks, resorts, and restaurants, and along the way, she developed some favorites of her own, And this week, she joins me once again to discuss her upcoming Travel Channel special, Samantha Brown's Disney Favorites. So, Samantha, I want to welcome you back to the WDW Radio Show. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. Thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule. And actually, you know, before we start talking about the new show, when we spoke a couple of months ago, you were literally preparing to run out the door. Your bags were packed in in your foyer, getting ready to run out to some exotic destination. What have you been up to since we last spoke? Well, we're a new series now called Passport to Great Weekends, and it involves European destinations, uh, Mexican, we've gone to, we'll be heading to Canada, but mostly it's based in the United States. So uh, since I've talked to you, uh, I've been to Orlando as a weekend destination. We've been a cruise as a weekend uh, away, uh, Miami Beach, uh, the seacoast of New Hampshire, which is where I'm from, so it was great to go back to my hometown. Uh, as well as Cabo San Lucas and Las Vegas. Wow. So a lot of places. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. And when does that, uh, that new series air? June 13th, I believe at 8 p.m. 
Excellent. Something else to add to my TiVo list with Samantha Brown on it, other than just the Disney shows. But your new show um, that's coming up is all about your favorites at the Disney parks, both Walt Disney World and Disneyland. Tell us a little bit about that special and maybe how the idea for the special came to be. Well, the the special came to be um, because so many of my friends... um, have kids now that are Disney going age. And so many of my friends like, how do we do Disney? How, we're so overwhelmed. That how do you approach it? What should we do? Where should we go? And so Travel Channel and I, as well as Walt Disney talked and thought that would be a great uh, special. It's just exactly what I do and how I negotiate the theme parks, my approach to them, how I plan it out. And, and certainly what I've learned from going there now, I don't know, 15 times in the last uh, five years, uh, you pick up a few tips. And so uh, more so than just my own favorites, it's, it's really about what I've learned along the way. So there's some great, great approaches to Disney. And I always tell people, gosh, there's just so much to do with Disney. You know, the bad news is you can't do it all. The good news is you can't do it all. So don't even put that pressure on yourself. You just go you sit everyone down who's going with you as a family. What do you want to do? What do you want to see? Everyone has their favorites. You try to map it out so everyone gets their own time doing what they want to do. And and you go from there. But you certainly cannot do it all. And with that sort of um, uh, thought to it, you, you know, you're just going to be overwhelmed. So it's best just to do a few things that you really want to see. Right, and it gives you a reason to keep going back to because one, like you said, you can't do it all, and number two, the beauty of the Disney theme parks is that they're always in a constant state of change. So when people said, "Well, you know, I was there five years ago, I've seen it all," there's so much that's changed, there's so much that you haven't seen because the park has grown and evolved, um, that it gives you a reason to keep going back year after year. Oh my gosh, yes! It's, it's like every year they have some major new attraction that's uh, just opening up. You know, from like Expedition Everest, which is wonderful, to Soren in California, and and they've even taken older rides um, that are were no longer were sort of you know put out of uh, out of use for a while and have brought them back. One we visited in Disneyland because the special actually involves Disneyland as well uh, was the old submarine voyage, and this goes to, to people who are there who have ever gone to Disneyland. I'm sure that was one of their favorites. It was the submarine ride right in the middle of uh, Disneyland, and that sat um, unused for I'm sure I think it's like eight years. And so they finally brought it back as Finding Nemo. And so it's interesting how they really didn't know what they were going to do with it. And so they just waited. And sure enough, along comes a Disney movie that captures everyone's hearts. And now they've got something to turn that rock into. So it's interesting to see how they reinvent themselves as well, not just adding their new but just uh, incorporating new aspects of Disney that just keep that magic going. Exactly. And as long as, you know, we're talking, the subject is your Disney favorites. I actually happened to go out to Disneyland for the first time in more than a decade a few weeks ago, and I rode Finding Nemo. What did you think of the submarine voyage? I thought it was adorable. As I remember, that Disneyland was my very first trip uh, to any sort of Disney theme park. And so for me, Disneyland is really close to my heart. And I remember that submarine voyage very well. It was great how they actually kept some of the the um, the objects that were in the old ride that I remember, like the big scallop shell opening up and the bubbles coming out. I just remember being a kid and just really feeling like I was going underwater. And so it's neat to, I mean, that's the whole point is to feel like a kid again, no matter how old you are. So I, I thought they did a great job. 
And that's the beauty of what Disney does, too. You know, purists, in quotes, I put it up, like myself, that love some of the old attractions, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Sometimes we shudder when we see an attraction close and going to be reopened. But when they do mm-hmm. things like they did with Finding Nemo that makes it appeal to such a broad audience from the, the purists that love the old attractions to the new generations of fans of Finding Nemo, uh, it, it's a beautiful marriage of the new and the old. Right. Perfectly said. Now, you said you're a, a Disneyland kind of girl at heart. Would you say that you think out of the all the theme parks, Disneyland and the four parks in Walt Disney World, you think that's your, your personal favorite? Oh, no, I think my personal favorite is, um, is uh, Animal Kingdom. I mean, it's just so beautiful, and you really feel like you're in another place uh, on the planet entirely. And I, I think they just did such a beautiful job with that and really showing us how to respect animals, how to um, treat them and see them in what seems to be a more natural habitat and than a zoo. And it, you just it's one of those places where you just want to walk around in. And again, uh, that's another point we bring up in my show is that really the magic is everywhere. It's just not in the attractions that you go to. Uh, you just sit down on a park bench and a parade goes by, characters walk by, uh, and, and that's, uh, that's something that's certainly prevalent in the animal kingdom. You just, you just kind of see, uh, walk around, and every inch of it is beautiful. Every inch of it is magical, and you're always in that experience. I agree. And, and again, you were talking about the show is beyond just about some of your personal favorites, which I can tell you as a fan of the shows, we're interested in hearing because, like I said, you know, when we watch you, it's kind of like watching your friend on TV and talking to you about one of uh, a place that we're all passionate about. But give us maybe a sneak peek at some of the things on the show that, that we might see on your list. Uh, well, definitely uh, a Tower of Terror. <laughs> one of my <laughs> favorites, which I always find strange since I stay in so many hotels. Of course, that ride is based on a hotel where something went terribly wrong. So uh, I don't know. It's like just an excuse that you you should always tip your bellman. You never know what's going to happen to you. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I like that ride a lot. And the one that's really near and dear, but uh, just I thought was wow, this is Disney at its best. Was Turtle Talk with Crush? I remember the first time I saw that. I just I couldn't believe the technology and that that you felt like you were talking to the movie and just to see the children's reaction was incredible. So what's wonderful about in our show, what we did is um, when the whole audience leaves, I get to call back Crush and he comes and we have a, a personal one-on-one conversation. And uh, so so that was uh, really cool too, because I'm just like, wow, I got to talk to Crush. Um, and again, that's where you, you know, the adult leaves you and the kid, you know, you're eight years old again. Um, some of the other things I did, uh, we actually, we had my Disney favorites and then we had my my used-to-be favorite, sort of uh, uh, favorites past, and, and that would be the teacups, which I remember as a little kid going on and absolutely loving, and now as an adult, I can't even imagine going on that ride. It just kind of <laughs> makes you sick looking at it. <laughs> just You see all the all the parents there with their kids not liking it at all, and you could just say, you know, you're really, you're you're taking one for the team here. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Your parents are really helping you out. Because, you know, as a kid, you just want to be sick for some strange reason. We just want to spin around and so we feel this lightheadedness. And uh, so, it, you know, we, we visited some of the rides that used to be my favorites. Well, actually, that was the only one. And, of course, it's not terribly seriously said, but uh, uh, we, we did things like that. And we, and we tried to hit as many theme parks as possible. You know, the um, Epcot, Magic Kingdom, Animal Kingdom, Disneyland, even uh, California Adventure. So we tried to make them kind of spread out as well. 
Now, you mentioned things like Tower of Terror, and then on the opposite mm-hmm. of the spectrum, you have Turtle Talk with Crush, and somewhere in the middle, you've got the teacups. So are you more of a, a thrill ride fan, or is Winnie the Pooh sort of more your speed? Well, you know, that's a good question. I, li- I like them both. I, I love roller coasters. I love being scared. and uh, But I also love uh, Soarin' Over California, which is more of an emotional thrill than just a, you know, scared out of the seat of your pants thrill. And... Uh, so that, that's what I like about Disney so much is they just have, they run the spectrum in terms of, of really making you feel alive and thrilled and exhilarated in, in many different levels. And again, you know, it's that immersive experience that you get, whether it be the level of interactivity that you get with Turtle Talk with Crush or that incredible experience that you get, say, for riding Expedition Everest at night, that you really feel mm-hmm. as though you've been transported and you're not in, in the middle of Orlando. You're now somewhere in the Himalayas. Absolutely. Now, what about some of your favorite experiences outside the parks? There's so much to experience beyond just the theme parks and the attractions. What about some of the things you enjoy doing outside the parks? Well, I think, you know, we did, um, uh, well, Downtown Disney has uh, Cirque du Soleil show La Nuba, which I believe is the only, oh gosh, I forget. I mean, it's the only Cirque du Soleil show in Orlando. Um, and one of the few that are outside of Las Vegas. And it's wonderful. I mean, it's such a beautiful show. And any time you can see a Cirque du Soleil show, you need to see it. It's just a, an opportunity that you can't pass up. But we also recently did for uh, the Great Weekend series just a weekend in Orlando and sort of went beyond the theme parks because Orlando is so connected to Walt Disney World, and yet they're incredibly different, entirely different, in fact. And so it was wonderful to explore the neighborhoods there and, and go to a place called Johnson's Diner, which is one of the most famous places for soul food and a wonderful place, wonderful atmosphere. And it's just one of those places where, you know, every politician goes to get a pulse of the community and what's happening really in neighborhoods these days. And of course, great, great food. Um, So that, you know, there's a, it was one of the few times actually when we did the Orlando show that I did go beyond Walt Disney World. Um, usually I'm, I'm in the world and that's where we stay because it's, it takes a while to shoot those scenes, even though I'm only going on the roller coaster once. Actually, we shoot it uh, four or five times, you know, much to everyone's <laughs> <laughs> incredible jealousy. <laughs> but uh, so things take a lot longer when you're shooting, and especially crowds are, are thick and we don't want to get in their way. So we're always very aware of, of um, just trying to be out of people's way in the theme park so it takes us a long time so unfortunately that means well fortunately you stay in the parks but unfortunately you don't get to get out that often all right well that actually brings up an interesting question can you tell us maybe what a typical day of shooting is like when you're doing one of the walt disney world specials sure usually um we start very early we probably start around 6 30 so that's about a 4 a.m call for all of us um and uh, we got to get in the hair and makeup. Well, I had to get in the hair and makeup. Got to look good. Got to look good for the mouse. And uh, so we start at 6.30 a.m. to do uh, the rides because we need to do things like Expedition Crisp, Tower of Terror, all their big top attractions when there's nobody there. Because, again, this is why I like Disney a lot. They really respect the people who are going there. They have first priority. And so we work around them. You know, people are spending a lot of money. This is their dream to go to Walt Disney World. We don't want to get in their way by saying, hey, you can't take this right now. Or there's a camera here. Could you do this? Um, so those, mo- most of the big attractions you see me doing, it's when nobody's there. And so it's an interesting con- you know, feeling to be in Walt Disney World when it's completely silent. Uh, it's pretty neat. And um, 
usually go till, gosh, I mean, we'll go till we have to do the fireworks as well. So we'll go to about 10 o'clock at night. It's a long day, um, but a fun day. I was going to say, you're not going to get much sympathy from the, from the listeners, I'm sure. Not at all. No, and I don't want it. Don't need it. Oh, it's great. <laughs> you uh, you mentioned Lanuba, and you, you briefly alluded to some of the shows in Walt Disney World. And I think that beyond Lanuba, even some of the shows inside the theme parks are near Broadway quality. Uh, I'm, I'm mm. sure you've had a chance to see some of the shows, some of the newer ones like Finding Nemo, the musical, some of the ones that have been on for some time. Are there any sort of... Uh, of the shows inside the parks that you really, really enjoy? You know, I don't get to see the shows. Um, that's a very good point. There, I've, We've very rarely showed live shows, and what we don't see on camera, we don't do, because, again, I'm not there. I'm not, like, on my downtime getting into line and saying something. Unfortunately, we have to keep to the schedule and go. So, so I actually do miss out on a, a few things that I'd like to do while I'm there. But uh, so I, I don't, uh, I've never seen a show. Well, I will, I will extend the invitation next time you're down to take you to go see Finding Nemo the musical because you're missing something is spectacular. Is that the one to see? That is the oh, one okay. to see. I think Finding Nemo and uh, The Lion King, uh, again, are really near Broadway quality. And, you know, you, you oh, wonder... Okay, yeah, I've seen The Lion King. Yeah, yeah, that was a while ago. But, yeah, it's gorgeous. Beautifully done. Absolutely. Uh, some of the other things on your list that I saw weren't even really attractions per se, but just things about Walt Disney World that you like, such as the single rider line in Test Track. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm always a single, so it's not a problem. But it's a it's a good tip to know if you're there with a family or a group. And, and even though you are with a group, you can still get in the single line. And that, of course, means that you are not going to ride as a group. But, of course, as everyone who I'm sure is listening to this program knows, it gets you through the line faster. So if there's a, a really cool ride that you want to get through um, quicker... Uh, that that's the way to go. And as I always say, you know, by by the by the time you want to use the single line, you you kind of want to ditch the family you've been hanging out with all day anyway. So it works out really well. <laughs> you <laughs> you kind of get sick of each other, and so it's, it's a great excuse to get through a a quick line. <laughs> well, that's a nice thing, and that's what I'm looking forward to seeing in the show. Is like you said, these aren't just your personal favorites, but some touring tips that you're going to be able to offer the first time visitor as well as the returning guest. Yeah. But, uh, again, this is about your, your, some of your favorites, and I have to think that sometimes you might just like going and browsing the promenade and World Showcase, and deep down there's that one pavilion that you might like or that one drink that you might like to have as you're sitting there, people watching. What about, okay, use World Showcase, for example. Mm-hmm. Anything? What do I like to do in the, the pavilions? Oh, I love the World Showcase. I mean, I get to travel the world, so it's kind of neat to be in back in these areas and now know the languages that are spoken and of course everyone who works in each showcase is actually from that country so it's it's uh they do a great job of immersing you as much as you can in the appreciation of different countries around the world um and uh in epcot and in france particular is one of my favorite drinks and not many people realize uh that it's there it's this little pavilion little kiosk rather right across the street from the famous uh, popular uh, restaurant there where they serve a Grand Marnier orange slushy, um, and of course it's Grand Marnier, so it has alcohol in it. Of course, they can sell alcohol in Epcot. Actually, Magic Kingdom is the only place that they don't sell alcohol. But um, and it's so lovely. It's just such a refreshing drink, especially in the the hot uh, summer sun. And of course, it's orange, and you're in Florida, so it kind of ties in France and Florida in one drink. <laughs> Good excuse. That's a good way to justify having the Grand Marnier slush. Yes, exactly. It can be a cultural experience. I can make anything a cultural experience. 
Now, obviously, with, with the parks and experiences being so completely different and so expansive in so many ways, it must have been difficult to narrow down what must have been a very exhaustive list when you sort of kind of sat down and, and put pen to paper thinking about it. I'm sure you could have done a show just about the restaurants alone because the dining experiences are just spectacular. What maybe are some of or your single favorite dining locations? We loved I mean, my favorite dining location is actually back in uh, uh, California Adventure in Disneyland in California, and that's the Napa Rose. Uh, this is a beautiful restaurant, incredible chef, uh, wonderful sommelier, a real grown-up experience. And uh, I loved going there. I would just go sit at the bar, have a nice glass of wine and a bowl of soup and a little salad. Uh, but they have the you know the the kitchen is open, so you can see the chefs prepare your fish. You can see that things are fresh from California, which is such a bounty, bountiful state. And uh, they just do things right there. And um, it's just always been one of my favorites. I've gone back time and time again. But uh, well, one thing that that they're starting to do very well is to give you more healthy choices. And I know when you're there in Disney World, you don't want to eat broccoli. Nobody does. Um, Everyone wants the funnel cakes. Everyone wants the hamburgers and French fries. But when you are there for such a long period of time, as most people are when they're visiting Disney World, uh, five days at least, um, you need to eat better. (laughs) You need to eat a little more healthy because just your stamina, just your health, uh, it's actually pretty hard work to go, you know, to walk these parks. And so you're starting to see these wonderful little storefronts set up along the way um, in the Magic Kingdom, tropical fruit stands full of pineapple, uh, fresh cut watermelon. There's a cheese plate, sliced apples, uh, dill pickles, apple chips, and just wonderful little snacks to keep you going and, and keep you healthy. And uh, so I really like that trend a lot. I think they're doing such a good job of bringing healthy food back into the experience of, of Disney. I agree. They're very cognizant of the guest experience, again, just above and beyond the, the attractions themselves. It, it's the guest experience from beginning to end. And like you said, bringing in those healthy mm-hmm. choices, it, it sort of evidences that fact. And you talked about you know, going back time and time again, you like going back to, to the chef's table over at Napa Rose. What do you think it is about Disney? And I know this is sort of a, a broad-reaching question. What do you think about Disney or the Disney parks that you enjoy so much? And, and why do you think that, you know, you and I are not alone, that millions of people keep going back year after year after year? I think, you know, I asked somebody this because I had my reasons, but I always like to know how other people feel. And, and they said it quite simply. It's just it makes you happy. Everything here makes you happy. And these days with people's lives and how busy they, you know, they have it, their schedules are packed. We don't have as much money as we used to for long vacations. You make sure the time you spend away with your family is perfect. And Disney goes out of their way to make a perfect experience. And I've said this time and time again, um, that the people who work there are absolute first five-star quality your cast members um they're wonderful and they they absolutely give that experience to everybody and everybody feels like a vip and everybody feels like disney made this just for them and uh, they they just do an exceptional job 
I agree. That that is definitely what separates Disney from any other type of experience you can get anywhere else. And and even you know you're you're somebody that travels the world, but that that first class level of experience that you get from every single cast member that works there is really what makes it exceptional. And that's kind of what you help bring to us through the shows. And that's I think why they they've become so popular. But what's next for you? We know that you you said that you have the Great Weekends series premiering on June thirteenth. What else? Where else can we get more Samantha Brown? Um, We also did a a China special. We did three one-hour specials. I was in China all September. Um, So it's going to be amazing to see that. I've just done some of the work on that, like voiceover work, and it's just stunning. I still can't believe I went there when I see myself up on that screen. Um, And that's just sort of introducing people in the same way. I I would say you can't really compare China to Disney World, very different um, different entities, but just that idea of discovery, of having fun in a place. And of course, China is extremely foreign. And really, when it comes down to it, you, you just have a great time because it's so different. And there's no need to fear it. There's no need to um, think you're not up for something like that. It's, it's an, an amazing experience. And uh, it's a culture absolutely long overdue for, for the, the credit they should be getting as a, as a civilization. So it was amazing to be there. I mean, they've invented everything, and we just, we as people, are, as Westerners, have never acknowledged that. And uh, so, you know, things like we think we discovered and are made in the 1800s, they had in, you know, 4,000 B.C. So it's, you know, it's just a completely different civilization that I hope people really tune in uh, to, to discover and enjoy. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. And actually, let me ask you one other quick question going back to Disney um, that I didn't think of until you said that. You've traveled the world. You've seen so many exotic places. What Epcot's World Showcase, what we were talking about before, sort of tries to do is, is sort of bring into a very small space, a sort of microcosm of these uh, nations and these cultures. When you go to World Showcase and you compare it versus a place like China that you've seen firsthand, how do you think it's, it's represented in Epcot? Uh, I, I think very well. I mean, they try to, they, they're very good at meticulously actually sending their Imagineers over to these countries, studying the architecture and the culture, and then bringing it back. Um, and also, as I said before, just uh, using the cast members from that country to to fully immerse you as much as you possibly can in the state of Florida um, to make you feel like you're there. And so it, it's an experience that I think people should really uh, spend more time with, you know, I talk to the people who work there, you know, ask them how to say hello in their language. Uh, how are you really, you know, because that's what they want to be, um, you know, engaged upon and, and they want to talk about their country. So it's a wonderful learning experience for kids. It's not just about going through and getting a bratwurst in Germany and then getting a drink here. You can really talk to people and find out more about their culture. Absolutely. All right, well, to learn more and to see Samantha Brown's Disney favorites, you can tune in on April 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern on the Travel Channel. You can also visit TravelChannel.com to learn more about Samantha, her shows, Passport to Europe, and Passport to Latin America. There you can also find her travel guides and journals and so much more. And Samantha Brown, I once again reiterate to you that you do have the greatest job in the world. And although some of your fellow Travel Channel show hosts also get to travel the world like you do, be thankful that you're eating at places like the California Grill and Napa Rose and not where Andrew Zimmern from Bizarre Foods has to dine. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) I think when show topics were being handed out, he may have gotten the short straw, so... (laughs) 
<laughs> but I want to thank you again, not just for the wonderful work that you do on the shows and specials, but for coming back on the WDW Radio Show once again, spending some time with me and talking about one of our favorite destinations, Walt Disney World, and of course, Disneyland. Samantha Brown from the Travel Channel, thank you so, so much. Thank you. It's time to answer some more of your listener feedback and emails. And this week, I want to welcome back, after his long whirlwind trip around the world, Jeff Pepper to come on in and sit with me and see if we can get through some of the emails this week. Jeff, welcome back after a long time, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I, I thought you fired me, but I guess I guess I'm, I'm good to go still. <laughs> well, we cleared up the whole mess at the bank. Things are working well now. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> The checks are the checks are clearing now. So. Just in time for tax season too, which is which is perfect. So, <laughs> all right. So let's go ahead and get right into it. The first email comes from Matthew F in Pennsylvania, who says, "Lou, this is kind of two questions, but here it goes. First, do you know anything about Le Carnaval de Lumière or the World Showcase Parade? Not referring to the tapestry parades, but a very early World Showcase Parade. I can't really find anything about them or any pictures. I only know that they were very early in Epcot's history." Any info on what happened to them, segments, music, etc. would be awesome. And second, although it's not confirmed yet, I may be going to Walt Disney World in December of 2008, Epcot being my favorite park. I'd really like to know if you knew anything to do or find in Epcot that's a hidden treasure, to say, such as the center of Walt Disney World property. I'm not old enough for any tours, but I'd still like to see some cool stuff in my favorite park. Thank you. Keep up the great work on the show, Matthew. All right, Jeff, let's go first and talk about uh, Le, Carnaval de Lumiere, Le Carnaval de Lumiere, which premiered uh, back in October of 1982, just a couple of weeks after the park opened. I don't know if you remember or have seen anything about this old uh, kind of show that went on World Showcase. Yeah, I remember reading about it, but I I was totally out of the loop with it. I never I never got to Epcot until 1987, and the kind of the dynamic World Showcase had changed a little bit. So this is this is one I have to defer to you on. Yeah, there's really he's right. There's there's not a lot out there as far as video or pictures of it. But the thing that I do know about this, and that I do remember actually going because we went very early on after Epcot first opened, was that it was a very, very limited viewing area to see this. And that's because they used rear projection screens on barges that were floating in World Showcase. And like some of the later um, shows, there were fountains and music and other types of effects. Uh, but these barges that were located on the lagoon, you could really only see from a couple of different points. I remember uh, near Mexico and Canada were two of them, but if you were on the opposite side of the lagoon, you really wouldn't get a very good view of the show. That was probably one of the things that led to its demise and why it wasn't there for very, very long. But as far as the other half of the question, you asked about some of those hidden treasures that you might be able to look for and find on your own in Epcot. Uh, a couple that I can think of right off the bat that I kind of like are over in World Showcase. The first would be uh, the working water wheel over in Morocco. It's by the store on the, on the lagoon side of the promenade. Um, there's a great sort of water fountain and water wheel that, that's, a, uh, that's working on that side. And I also like the hedge maze over in the back of the UK pavilion uh, by where the band goes and plays the Beatles songs in the back. Yeah, I agree. Um, the the back area of 
the UK there is great, and a lot of people don't extend back that far when they're walking through. They kind of just stay to the main promenade as they're walking through and maybe hit some of those shops at the very edge near the Rose and Crown, and there's a whole kind of area back there that's sort of made to look like a park and it has the grandstand, as you said. Um, I agree with you with Morocco, and I also like to go back and explore back into the back areas of Morocco. Morocco is kind of like a, a maze in and of itself of just kind of passages. And if you head all the way to the back, they have a little room where they sometimes have the Aladdin meet and greet. They have a little small homage to Aladdin there. Um, one thing that uh, just being there last week, the one kind of still a hidden treasure now, and if you haven't done it, by all means, it's still there, is the Epcot 25th um, showcase that's in um, the... Interventions, which West. side am I on? West. West, thank you. And what's really neat about that, and I think what's I get such a kick out of with that is, we, you know, we did our DSI or you know our, our Wayback Machine, I'm sorry, on uh, Communicore, and that hallway there, that's where that's located at. It's at the very back there, kind of on the opposite side, I guess, of uh, Club Cool, is is um still very much the way Communicore used to be, and you can kind of go in there and get some sense of how the whole of Communicore used to be with its long hallways and very high ceilings, and I really enjoy that spot. Yeah, I agree. And, and going back quickly to World Showcase, like you said, Morocco and the UK, and some of the other pavilions too, even like Canada and France, and of course, we love Japan. Those are some of the ones, and China really too, those are some of the ones that you really should take the time and explore because there's a lot sort of behind the front facade that faces the promenade that you can go and see. And, and I think Morocco, with its winding streets and sort of the little museum that you can go into, is a really, really good example of that. And, and obviously, there's, you know, you said that you, you're not old enough for the tours, but you can kind of give yourself your own tour and also ask some of the cast members because they'll be happy to tell you about some of those cool details, um, especially like in UK, the different ages and the meanings behind some of the buildings. And, and actually, and just remember, there are exhibits in, throughout World Showcase, and two that come to mind that I'm their particular favorites of mine are um, the Viking exhibit that's in the Stave Church in Norway, and then also the Tin Toy exhibit, which we talked a little bit about when we talked about Japan, that is still in Japan. Uh, both of those are very, very cool exhibits, and they're kind of, you know, tucked away. You gotta, you gotta find them. But what's really nice about them is they're nice and quiet. Um, they, they, if you want to get inside the cool air and get away from the crowds for a few minutes, they're, they're a nice respite. Matthew, I got to just say this: eat your way around the world. That's just that's how to really most best enjoy World Showcase. But we have more emails to get to. Let's move ahead. The next one comes from Brian, who says, "Lou, I've only been to Disney World's Magic Kingdom in 2004. I've never been to any other parks in the world, and was wondering if the Tiki Bird Show was ever like California's Tiki Bird Show was. If it was, when did it change and why? Thanks and keep it Disney, Brian." Uh, Brian, it did, and this is actually timely, and I'm happy that Jeff is here because we took specific note of the Enchanted Tiki Room in Disneyland and sort of comparing it to what we have here in Walt Disney World. Now, it did; it was an opening day attraction in Walt Disney World. It opened as the Tropical Serenade uh, starring, starring the, the Tiki Birds. It was pretty much an exact duplicate of the Disneyland attraction, although the uh, pre-show area was different than what you see now. They have sort of an outside... Uh, garden area with tiki gods in uh, Walt Disney World we have a, a covered queue now we have the, the audio animatronic toucans now we have um, yeah now we have uh, the William and Morris the toucans and it's uh, Phil Hartman and Don Rickles 
But originally, the show here was sponsored by the Florida Citrus Growers. We did a Wayback Machine or Slash DSI segment on this a while back. But the show did close in September of 97. That's when it was sort of renovated, refurbed, and and quote-unquote updated. It reopened in 1998 as the Enchanted Tiki Room under new management. Now we have people like Iago and Zazu with Gilbert Gottfried kind of updating it to some include characters from uh, Aladdin and The Lion King. Um, Jeff, you know, this this might be an opportunity for you to sort of give your opinion as to why you think it closed, what do you think of the change, and sort of comparing the two. It's... what was really great about Disneyland was when we were there and we kind of touched on it when we were um, doing our recap is they really went back and turned it into a real nostalgia trip out of Disneyland. They call it Walt Disney's Tiki Room and they kind of pay homage to to what it originally was because the Tiki Room was very important because it was one of the very innovative moments in terms of the use of you know audio animatronics. It was what, sort of one of the the benchmarks there in the development of audio animatronics. It plays now, the Disney World version has been somewhat controversial among Disney fans because it brings up the whole debate as to, you know, the influx of characters into classic attractions. There's currently a debate going on about It's a Small World uh, and uh, proposals along those lines for the uh, attraction out in Disneyland. And so it's controversial. Um, I always got a kick out of the, the version in Florida. I mean, it it was fun um you know people say it's kind of you know it's it's almost self-deprecating and they they don't like that but i i've i've always kind of enjoyed it you know i'd like the version in florida and i have no problem with the update and sort of making a little bit more relevant for kids having characters that they might be more more familiar with now that being said there was something very very charming to me um about the Disneyland version, knowing it was the original version, knowing Walt's influence on it. Uh, I like that old style of music. So for me, being obviously older than maybe the nine or 10 year old that's going to go to the Florida version and, and like it, there was something very special about the the Disneyland version. And I'm happy that it's referred to specifically as Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. And we'll touch on this with another question later on about some of these differences between Disneyland and Walt Disney World that we, we talked about. But I think it's almost a nice contrast having the two. And again, I have no problem and I really enjoy both. I agree. All right. The next email comes from Ken Simeone, who said, Lou, my son is a big fan of Disney Quest. I'm hearing rumors that it's closing. Since you are a gold source of information, could you please tell me what you are hearing? Thanks, Ken. Ken, you're right. I talked about this some time ago. There's been a rumor for a number of months, possibly even going on years at this point, the Disney Quest in Downtown Disney, which is that five-floor virtual reality sort of interactive arcade, may very well be closing. One of the rumors was that um, an ESPN club or an ESPN zone might be transplanted there, possibly from the boardwalk. Uh, I have not heard anything new, although take it for whatever it is. The Cheesecake Factory Express, which was located upstairs, which was uh, a place to get some desserts and coffee and things like that, they have pulled out. I believe their contract has expired. They've pulled out of this Disney Quest. I don't know if that really means anything or if this is, you know, sort of sound, starting to sound the death knell for it. I think part of the problem is that it was expected or anticipated that Disney Quests would be opening up around the country 
possibly worldwide. I believe, Jeff, they opened one in Chicago that didn't last very long. From what I understand, this one is still relatively popular, especially it's a place that parents, when they're going to downtown Disney, they can let their kids go. Maybe if the weather is not all that great, they can spend a few hours inside uh, in a great environment. And I actually like some of the virtual reality games, like the Pirate Game and the Jungle Cruise Game. Yeah, this was a good question, and it's really relevant. Um, it's, and it's interesting, too. Uh, as I said, uh, we just came back from a vacation, and we hadn't been to Disney Quest for a couple of years because we had always gone to Disney Quest when they had rolled it, um, the admission into um, the passports that we got as a part of a, of a package. And since we became AP people, um, we didn't get that upgrade. And the kids, my two kids, uh, they're 14 and 10, love Disney Quest. It's it's just it's a playground for kids their age because all the video games are free. Plus, you have all the virtual reality stuff. And to me, um, I think a lot of the rumors were overblown. And I think. There is also this sense out there among um, among Disney fans that it's it's dying or it's having this death knell because of all these rumors and everything. And what you just said is absolutely true. It's still very very popular. Um, when my kids were there, they said it was it was packed. And this was a weekday evening. Um, there wasn't anything really special going on, but it was very very busy. And I think people really underestimate how popular it is and how much revenue it does generate. And I think. It, like you said, and there's uh, the, the Cheesecake Factory. I did some reading on that when that announcement was made. And the Cheesecake Factory, I, the, the politics of that seem to be more a little bit based not so much in any any problems with Disney Quest per se. But I think when Cheesecake Factory signed that initial contract, I think they were looking at it as a as a broader thing based on the fact that they were going to, as you said, open these parks across the country. And when that didn't materialize, I think that played more into their decision-making process. And the fact of the matter is, Disney's putting their own um, food venue in there in the same spot. So to me, I can't imagine them totally going up there and remodeling or redoing the whole food venue on the top floor there if they're looking at, at the possible short-term demise of the of the place. So I, I think it's going to be around for a little longer. Right, and I, and I agree with you. I think the, the Cheesecake Factory move is separate and apart from the Disney Quest itself because, like you said, it was really not about this particular location as opposed to the venues that were anticipated they're going to be brought on uh, nationwide that, that just never came to be. But I'll put a link up in the show notes for, for anybody who wants to know a little bit more about Disney Quest. You can go to uh, DisneyWorld.com and go to Downtown Disney, find out a little bit more about it there. Next question is from Dean in Wilmington, North Carolina, who said, Lou, love the show and all that you do for the Disney community. I have a quick question and a comment about something regarding the Germany Pavilion in Epcot. When Epcot opened in 1982, Germany was in the middle of the Cold War, split between East and West Germany. And my question is, who was it that sponsored the pavilion? I would guess that it would have to have been a West Germany company, seeking that we were sided with them. Walt desired that it would be a community of the future. However, I find it almost ironic and coincidental that Germany would eventually be restored as one country eight years after Epcot opened. How bizarre. I know that all the pavilions are supposed to represent the history and past of the countries, but one can only imagine if Germany had not been reunified and what would have been done to the pavilion today. I appreciate any help regarding the original sponsor of the Germany Pavilion. Thanks for your help, Lou. Dean. Dean well, here's an interesting story, Lou. I mean, before we go into the sponsorship, I think it's important that everybody knew this, because this is one of the very big secrets about Epcot Center, and that is... In the early days of Epcot there, before the end of the Cold War, Germany was a much smaller pavilion. And right when all that happened politically on the world stage, 
At the same time, they knocked down a wall at the back end of the Germany pavilion, and there was a whole other pavilion on the other side of it that they then incorporated into the current World Showcase attraction. So I think it's just, let's be clear that you know a lot of people don't know that, and I think we, we need to kind of clear that up. <laughs> now, funny as that is, I have to clarify, that is not true. <laughs> so please direct all your comments and inquiries to Jeff at 2719hyperion.com. And not okay, go ahead. I think he wants to know about the sponsors. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, maybe this was a mistake. But, um, Dean, that's actually a great question. And I had some, a difficult time just doing some very, very quick research trying to find named sponsors of the Germany Pavilion. And even now, trying to find current sponsors. Uh, it's not something that Disney posts on the website per se. I do know that a company called uh, Valkenberg International is an exclusive wine supplier. Uh, for the pavilion, and they are one of the sponsors. But like a lot of the other pavilions around World Showcase, it's not necessarily an individual sponsor. So, for example, you might have General Motors sponsoring Test Track or Exxon or Siemens. For a lot of these um, international pavilions, they were either groups of companies or a, a number of large companies that sort of banded together to, to sponsor the pavilion. And Jeff, I'm not sure if you have any other information as far as what that either was early on or what it might be now specific to Germany. Yeah, no, I, I think Germany was always kind of, like you just said, a kind of a, a consortium of, of smaller businesses. I never ever saw a very large, I mean, and that's the interesting thing is you, you don't really see big, big sponsorship messages over there in the countries. I want to admit, it reminded me of an interesting story that Morocco, uh, the kingdom of Morocco was paid for. I think the entire pavilion was almost entirely paid for by the kingdom of Morocco, by the, the monarch. Yeah, he, he basically said, um, you know, uh, we don't want any of the other countries. We're going to do it ourselves. And he paid for the sponsorship of the pavilion. He sent over his personal artist artisans and mailums to come over and do um, the artwork. Now, I mean, I know Hummel is, ex in, for example, in one of the stores. I don't know if that makes them a sponsor or not. Um, if anybody has any additional information, by all means, please email me and let me know because uh, I'd be interested, especially, like you said, about... Um, the original sponsors of Germany back in 1982. The full Germany, not the Jeff half-and-half half Germany that he alluded to. So I think it's only best that we move on to the next question. A nice, simple one. It's, it's from Bruce, and he says, Lou, I've got a question for you. There's a signpost by the entrance of the Disney, now Hollywood Studios, that points to different cities and the distance to them, just like the one that's shown on MASH. Kids, that's an old TV show that was very popular in the 70s. Where does the signpost supposed to go? Judging by the distances, I'm guessing it would go to Hollywood, California. Any ideas, Bruce? Well, uh, what Bruce is talking about is right outside of Sid Cahuenga's one-of-a-kind shop to the left-hand side of the entrance of Disney's Hollywood Studios. On the right-hand side, as you're facing the building, there is a deer, for some odd reason. And next to that is a signpost that has, uh, I believe, six or seven different arrows pointing in different directions to Boston, Tokyo, Milwaukee, Paris, Orlando, and Rome. Uh, and judging by the distances on there, you know, you, one would originally think, well, maybe that's the distance from that location. But considering Orlando is uh, 2,500 miles away, Jeff, my only guess is that it would be from either maybe the Disney Studios in Burbank or Hollywood, or maybe the original location of the building that Sid Coenglis was modeled after. Yeah, um, I was about to say, um, Sid Kawanga's, um building is one of these weird situations. I've, I've been doing a series of posts on my blog, and, and Matt Hotchberg and a few other folks on the web have all been kind of doing features on 
the buildings in Disney's Hollywood Studios and what their their actual original buildings that are, they're derived from. And Sid Kawanga's is not really based on a specific building architecturally. Um, it's kind of a bungalow style that was popular in Hollywood at that time. But the actual building was is kind of themed to this was the last um, building like house that was left on Hollywood Boulevard when Hollywood Boulevard went from like sleepy little kind of village to full-blown Hollywood and pretty much all the development kicked all the residential houses out there was one holdout house that was left there and architecturally it doesn't resemble Sid Kawangas but it was themed Sid Kawangas was themed as that last holdout who then the fictional Sid Kawanga took advantage of that I'm my guess is based on those those the mile situation there that those miles are based on being sort of right at the, the heart of Hollywood there at you know Hollywood Sunset Boulevard area of Hollywood yeah, I'll put a picture up in the show notes of the signpost in case uh, you're not familiar with it and you have a frame of reference. And also, I'll refer you back to show number 13. That's from May 6th of 2007. That's where we take a look at some of the history and the architecture and details of um, Hollywood Boulevard. We talk specifically about this and some of the other uh, facades that reference buildings in, in the original, uh, in, in the real Hollywood. And obviously, Jeff over at 2719 Hyperion has done a number of posts recently really sort of um, alluding back to some of those original things, so I'll refer you over to them as well. Next email says, Lou, love the show. You do a great job with the entertainment and bringing back old-school Disney memories. A few questions for you. First, my fiancé and I are going to the Land and Sea Cruise in June of 08 for our honeymoon, and we'll be staying at the Beach Resort. We're going to dine at the California Grill and Victoria and Albert's. Not too shabby. Is there anything you recommend for dinner? I like anything, but she's not big on seafood. And two, we want to hang out around Epcot and the Magic Kingdom at the end of Illuminations to see the burn-off and then wishes for the kiss goodnight. We'll be with our outer rental and we'll be relying on Walt Disney World transportation, which is oh so reliable. My question is, if we stay, will we be able to get back to the resort via buses or are we stuck hitching a ride with the passing traffic? Thanks for the great show and all you do. That's from Josh in Atlanta, Georgia. Josh, let's take your first question first about Victorian Alberts and dinner recommendations. Uh, you should note that the menu really changes on a daily basis, so I can't give you necessarily any specific items. Now, you did mention not liking seafood. They actually have a menu that they will work with you um, if you are not a fan of seafood, but there are things like veal tenderloin, and the pork is outstanding. Angus beef, they have Kobe beef, um, which is actually um, an add-on. It's like, a, I think, 25 or $30 more for the menu. Uh, what we did when we went, we went with another couple. We all got a little bit something different and sampled everybody else's. Uh, again, there's even some unique things. There's been times, I think somebody there had elk. Um, and there, there's obviously a bunch of seafood items as well. There's vegetarian dishes, if need be. Um, again, the steak there is one of the best on property. But it's a great opportunity to try some very unique um, unique offerings that Victorian Howard's has to offer. As far as your second question, um, as far as the buses go, the buses will run for a few hours after the parks close, and they will pretty much continue to do so as guests are queuing up. So Disney won't just say, well, sorry, it's 12 o'clock, buses are done, good luck getting back. They'll either call another bus over or a shuttle. Uh, the worst, worst, worst case scenario is if you know, you get lost in the back of the UK pavilion and you're the last guy leaving, you can either get a cab, they'll call a shuttle for you, or if you really had to, you could walk through the International Gateway, maybe get a taxi from the boardwalk or the beach club and not have to worry about um, hitchhiking a ride from Jeff Pepper on the way back. (laughs) 
Nothing to add, Jeff. We'll move on. I, I always have my car. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Next email is from Andy in Minnesota who said, Lude, just a couple of ob- observations about show number 42, mostly on Disney World versus Disneyland. I just came back from my first trip to Disneyland a few days before the show came out, and I did agree that there are some variances be- between rides at the two parks. A couple of examples. I believe the wait area at Disneyland's Star Tours is much, much better than Hollywood Studios, while the Magic Kingdom Splash Mountain's story is more complete than Disneyland's. I think this is for two main reasons. The first, and probably more obvious, is space restrictions. You can't fit every ride the way you want to in Disneyland, and secondly, I believe it's Imagineering's way of getting you to visit both parks. If both properties were exactly the same, why would you visit the other? Sadly, because of my second theory, I don't believe the much better Disneyland Space Mountain will come to the world anytime soon. Again, that's from Andy in Minnesota. Andy, thank you. And uh, Jeff and I were actually just sort of talking about uh, our Disneyland trip offline before we started recording. And, you know, I I always felt, and I think we we stressed this during the show, Jeff, that I don't like and I don't think there should be the Disneyland versus Walt Disney World debate because it's not about choosing one over the other. Yes, there are some attractions that objectively or subjectively, you might even say, are quote-unquote better. And I think that that's just, that's not just the reason to visit both, but there's also these, there's unique attractions in both parks, like the Matterhorn and Finding Nemo subs, which we didn't even cover in the Disneyland show to a certain degree, which give you a reason to like and obviously go visit both parks. I just, yeah, and I, I, I don't, I don't think that, that there's really an intentional plan on the Imagineers part to, to differentiate the attractions like Splash Mountain or Space Mountain or anything like that. I think I think people have to realize that Disneyland and Disney World are very, very distinct entities. I mean they're 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 granted they're part of the same division of the company, but the decisions that are made for why something happens in Disneyland and why something happens in Disney World are basically a lot of times decided by totally different individuals or managers and so why something might happen in Disneyland it's not going to automatically be a slam dunk for Disney World and the one point he did make is very very true Um, I think you know Splash Mountain was developed originally for Disneyland and then it was um, expanded for Disney World and I think it was something where Splash Mountain was one of those you know lightning in a bottle moments it was like it was a home run out of the park right from the get-go and that's why they immediately made plans to, to put it into Disney World and I think what they found was that yes they had they didn't have to deal with the space constraints in Disney World, so they were able to expand on it and just enhance it to the point where it would be a much, much, much funner experience. Not funner experience, but enhanced. A little plus, a little more, a little more, you know, a little more to it. And I, I, like I said, I don't think it's intentional. I just think it's just you. You do have sort of two different development groups doing a lot of this kind of stuff. Yeah, you're right. And first, I mean, funner is not a word. And second... Uh, <laughs> All right, Mr. Lawyer. <laughs> second, I think it's not about, you know, mistakes, quote-unquote, in Disneyland versus Disney World, but they were able to take advantage of the lessening of the space restrictions in Walt Disney World and some of the, the ability to place attractions in different locations and expand on different things. And again, I think it's a benefit to us as Disney fans because, like you said, we now have reasons to go and visit both parks. And and the best thing I did this year was go and visit Disneyland because I not only have such a greater appreciation for it, but now I look forward to planning my next trip, uh, you know, when I get to take my family with me. You're here. 
Jeff, unfortunately, that's all the time we have this week. Um, again, we actually ran longer than I than I had expected, but I did want to try and get through as many as we could. I appreciate you coming back and answering some of these, these with me. Don't forget to go and visit Jeff's blog over at 2719 Hyperion. And Jeff, I will see you soon, buddy. Okay, thanks, Lou. And if you have an email that you want answered on the show, you can send your emails to Lou, that's L-O-U, at WDWRadio.com. That's all the time we have this week. I want to say thank you for tuning in once again. Hope you enjoyed this week's show. A very special thanks to Samantha Brown from the Travel Channel. Her new special is going to air as part of the season of Disney on the Travel Channel. Be sure to check your provider for times. Also, special thanks to Barry Frechette for writing in and joining me on the Hidden Treasures of the Landscape and Gardens of Walt Disney World segment. If you want to be on the air and have a segment suggestion, or you can email me at lou at wdwradio.com. Or you can call the voicemail anytime at 206-202-4WDW. That's 206-202-4939 with a comment, review, or even just a hello from the parks. On our show notes page, this and every week at WDWRadio.com, I'll post more information and links to topics that I covered. There's also going to find some recommended products and services such as Owner's Locker for your own personal secure storage locker delivered to and from your resort. Attractions Magazine for the latest issue of the new magazine covering all of the local Orlando theme parks and water parks. Orlando Fun Tickets for your authorized and discounted official Disney tickets to Walt Disney World. And Mouse Fan Travel, my recommended travel provider specializing in Disney vacations destinations. You can also pick up your official WDW Radio shirts right on the site as well. If you visit DisneyWorldTrivia.com, you can also get my audio guide to Walt Disney World Main Street USA as either a CD or download along with both of my Walt Disney World trivia books signed for still just two for 20 bucks. April 22nd is going to mark Disney's Animal Kingdom's 10th anniversary, and I will be there in the park covering event, and I'll also be attending the Wild Decade fan gathering that day as well. And in addition to bringing you coverage right from the official celebration, I also want to announce that I will be bringing you a show right from inside the parks, as I'll be taping a show with a live audience right from inside Disney's Animal Kingdom. Look for more details on the WDWRadio.com website or on next week's show. And if you're attending Disney's Animal Kingdom's 10th anniversary, please come by and say hello. In the coming weeks, I'll have more special guests and segments in store for you, so be sure and stay tuned. And as always, if you like the show, please review us on iTunes. And more importantly, please help spread the word and let others know about it. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Have a great week. See ya. Hi, Lou. It's Catherine from Massachusetts. I was just listening to your latest show where you talked about um, DVC, and I wanted to let you know that we are DVC members. We bought into Saratoga Springs before it actually even opened, so we bought it sight unseen. Um, We have been three times, and we'll be going again in December of 08, and we just love it. Our first vacation was with um, our whole family. There was eight of us, and we stayed in a two-bedroom, and it was just absolutely wonderful. I've stayed in other resorts, including moderates and values at Disney um, since then, not using my DVC points. And 
I always miss home. I, I can't wait to get over to Saratoga Springs because um, it is just so different than staying at any of the other Disney hotels. So we've um, become very uh, pampered by DVC. And one of the best benefits that I've found by owning it is the annual price discounts. Um, the, the annual pass discounts are fantastic. It's about $100 less than what um, I believe even Florida residents get. So um, we would definitely do it again. If I had the money, I would buy even more points. It's just wonderful, and I look forward to trying out some of the other resorts. We're just very happy with Saratoga Springs, so we keep going back there. Um, great show, and keep up the good work. Bye-bye. How you doing, Lou? Uh, just listened to your show where you answered the email about whether or not there's a Darkwing Duck character in the parks. Um, in December of 2003... Uh, we went to the Magic Kingdom, and we were walking through right, you know, the square, and there was, he was out greeting people, and we, it was my first trip to Disney World in a long time, so I wasn't paying a lot of attention to it, but we were videotaping as I was walking down the street, and uh, sure enough, if you, if you look at the background, there was Darkwing Duck uh, signing autographs and taking pictures, so I don't know if he's still out or around, but like I said, that was December of 2003. Anyway, I love the show. Uh, keep up the good work.